Please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 as we continue our study. If you're visiting with us, um, feel free to take a copy of God's Word in the pew rack in front of you. You'll find our text on page 999. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take that one. We'd be happy for you to have it and to see the truth for yourself this morning. We're looking this morning at verses 8 through 11. Titus 3, looking at verses 8 through 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. With the clocks having moved forward, again, we have further evidence of the arrival of spring in our midst. Interestingly, it has not put a spring in your step. <laughs> you look a little more weary today than normal, as do I, and I understand. But with the arrival of spring comes a uh, perpetual and recurring conflict in my home. I've already asked my wife for permission to share it with you, and she's given me the green light on this, so don't worry for her. Here it is. It deals with spring cleaning. Ultimately, there's some disagreement amongst me and my bride as to what the goal of spring cleaning should ultimately be. I'm largely of the mindset that if we haven't used it in the last 48 hours, we should throw it away. It wouldn't bother me if there was nothing on the shelf, if there was nothing in the closet, if all we had was like four pairs of clothes and the kids had two toys, everything would be great. Tanya, on the other hand, is more practical, more wise. She can envision with crystal clarity certain scenarios in which the object in question could be used. She can argue with a lawyer's logic and a mother's heart as to why we should hold on to whatever it is. Admittedly, my views are radical. Tanya keeps a clean house. She knows exactly what we need, what we don't need. And I have these optimistic pie-in-the-sky realities. <laughs> Ultimately, the debate, I'm sure you've had it before, exposes a larger issue in us all. And that is, why do we have to keep reorganizing and purging junk in the first place? I mean, why is this even a conversation? A recurring one at that? Where does it come from? Those things that just kind of make their way into our lives. I mean, we all have a tendency to hold on to things that are unimportant. We all have a tendency to let things accumulate in our lives. In fact, it's a law of nature. Really. The second law of thermodynamics. It says, in, the sense, in essence, things move from a state of order to disorder. You don't just wake up one day and your house is magically cleaner than it used to be. Your car doesn't grow cleaner over time. 
your files don't grow more organized. They grow less organized. It, it, you've got like the laws of nature themselves working against you in some way. So this is a big deal for us. The evidence, how's your garage looking? How's your closet looking? I don't know why we have these. How's your utility drawer looking? Maybe it's just my house, but we have this one drawer <laughs> that just can never be organized. It's just the random catch-all. Look, what's true of our homes can also be indicative of our hearts, can it not? We all, in some way, shape, or form, perpetually are languishing under overcrowded lives. You could see it in several levels, whether it's a maxed-out budget, an overloaded schedule, a contact book that's littered with strangers and forgotten friends. These are the symptoms of a heart that's in need of some form of spring cleaning, if you will. It's like a computer with a maxed out hard drive. We, we run kind of sluggish and slow, and we know we need to get some things off of there. Our commitment to our Lord, our family, our friends, our community starts to lag. So... Here we are, feeling like the jack of all trades and the ace of none. Or maybe some of us feel like the ace of trades in some things, but maybe not in the most important things. And we want, in turn, to live meaningful lives. Focused lives, productive lives, lives of significance. Brothers and sisters, I say this with all compassion and clarity. I want you to get it. God wants us to live our lives well. He doesn't want you. It isn't his intention or plan for you to live frustrated, ineffective lives. It is his design that his elect would be living full lives, productive lives, meaningful lives that are fixated on the gospel and effective for eternity. It's spiritual mediocrity, in fact, that Paul is addressing here in the book of Titus. Do you remember his concern for writing the book? He said that there were some things that were left undone. The church wasn't up to speed. It wasn't where it needed to be yet. Even in the opening, those first couple verses, Paul declares that he wants all the believers to be believing, abounding in truth that leads to godliness, confident of eternal life, even just a little later, he says, Titus, if you're going to get things in order, you need to get spiritual leaders in place who are going to confront such mediocrity, such entropy, such decay that just naturally happens. Remember what was going on in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16? Some teachers had gotten into place who were beginning to imbibe the cultural values of Crete, and now the people were beginning to live out those things? And he says, no, this can't be. We can't allow the chaos to enter in. We, we've got to push back. We've got to fight against this. Also, the people themselves had a role to play in the pushback against the chaos, against the lack of organization that would naturally settle in. And one of the ways that they were to do this was to live the gospel and learn the gospel. As they learned the gospel, they were supposed to put it on display in their relationships with one another. And as they did this, the text tells us that they would be defending the gospel with their lives. In fact, it's not just defense. They go on the offense, and it says that they will be adorning the gospel 
God intends for every believer not just to survive, not just to waddle through somehow. He intends for them to be living powerful lives of gospel impact through their relationships with one another. But that's not all. We saw last week in Titus 3, 1 through 7, that God intends for his people to live powerful lives of gospel impact, not only in their relationships with one another, but also in their relationships to outsiders to those who weren't in the community of faith. faith. What they were supposed to be doing was actually incarnating the kindness of God, just as Jesus put God's kindness on display in human form. So also he's calling his people to put God's kindness on display by showing perfect courtesy to all men, by not quarreling with them, by caring for them, by obeying the authorities that are over them. This is not a mediocre life. He is not looking for us to struggle through. He wants us to live powerful, meaningful lives. So without giving up their jobs or leaving their families, Paul fully expected the church to advance its mission in a corrupt culture. And our Lord wants the same for us today. How? How do we stay effective and live for eternity when we already lead such full lives? How do we keep the main thing the main thing, if you will, when secondary things just constantly encroach? Simple. It's prioritization. It's a word you could use. Focus. It's another word you could use. Clarity. But focus or clarity on what? The text points out two things. The gospel and good work. The key to fighting back against the chaos that it will naturally settle in is maintaining focus on the gospel and good works, and we'll see three strategies for maintaining this focus in our text. The first one is found in verse 8, and that's simple. Embrace the value of the gospel and good works. Embrace its value. Embrace the value of the gospel and good works. Now, verse 8 is kind of tricky because... If you try to parachute into it, it doesn't make much sense. You've got to go back to verses 1 through 7 to understand exactly what he's talking about. Now, I want to read it uh, in context. So follow with me from verse 1 of chapter 3, and let's make our way into verse 8, and let's see what he's talking about. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Those are good works, right? Notice this. Here's the gospel. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when all that was true, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you see the connection now between verse 8 and everything that preceded it? He says, the saying is trustworthy. It's, it's singular. All right, He's talking about this, 
this one summary statement. What's he talking in particular about? The gospel. This concise summary of the gospel that he offered here, he says, look, this is something that is trustworthy. This is something that you can count on. It's as if, like, you're looking at the text, and he begins to just underline for us with this statement, verses 4 through 7. So you can imagine that. This is something you can count on. Gospel truth is something to be underlined. Now, the word, this saying, is trustworthy, just literally means it's something that can be believed. It's something that's dependable. It's something that's reliable. But for those of you who have read your Bibles through before, maybe the epistles especially, you notice this phrase several times. You'll find these trustworthy sayings, these uh, sayings that can be counted on. Uh, There's another one in... Oh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. 1 Timothy 1, 15. 1 Timothy 4, 9 to 10. Anytime you see that phrase, the saying is trustworthy, these were well-known sayings that provide concise unpacking of doctrinal content. He's saying this is doctrinal truth that you can believe. This is Paul's formula for disclosing the non-negotiable, the absolutely essential, the undebatable. Christian content, stuff we have to rely on. So he's got this underline, but then notice this. this, Don't worry, this will be the most grammatically technical portion of the message. We're not going to do this all day. But I want you to see, he says, the saying is trustworthy, but now notice what he adds. And I want you to insist on these things. Now, is that plural or singular? It's plural. So he's saying you could count on this one statement, you could count on the gospel, but there's something that I want you to insist on that includes the gospel, but is also larger than that. And what is that? And the context is what we just read. Verses 4 through 7 were the gospel. Verses 1 and 2 were the good works that would ultimately be expressed from an understanding of the gospel. So the, the, the church has an obligation to emphasize or to stress gospel content and gospel conduct. These things should be the focus of the ministry. So it's almost as if he puts a circle around verses 1 through 7. You've got the gospel underlined. That's where it starts. But if if you're going to hone in on anything, it needs to be how we should live in light of the gospel. And why is this so important to understand? Why would I take the time to point out the singular versus the plural? It's because Paul says this should be the emphasis or the insistence of the church. Now, if somebody's going to say, by authoritative revelation from God, that a church should focus on something, that this should be its mission, this should be its emphasis, we better be clear on what that thing is, right? Well, here... He says, you have to stress these things. The NIV uses stress. I actually like that. Stress these things. This is what should be the focus of the church. Living in light of the gospel. Behaving in a way that befits the gospel. You've got belief and behavior. Conduct and concept. So what's the plan? What's the ultimate outcome? If the church, you would expect the church to emphasize these things, so what's the intended result? How do we know if like, this is really happening? Like, what's our definition of success? Well, Paul gives it. If you're really emphasizing these things, this is what I hope will happen. Look again in verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You get what you emphasize. You get what you emphasize. 
Churches that emphasize the gospel's impact on everyday living get people who are careful to devote themselves to good works. Let's break this down. Careful. Careful. What does it mean? It means to be full of care. The English word lets you know. It's serious consideration. It's when you think about something. It's when you let your mind dwell on something. It's when you fix your attention on something. Interestingly, this same word is sometimes used in a negative context. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. It's the same root. What is it that we worry about? It's the things that constantly come to mind, the things that we just can't quiet. Here, he's not using it negatively. He's using it positively. He's saying, let these things dominate your mind. He says, I want you to constantly be dwelling on these things. I want you to be fixating your attention on these things. We need to be careful about what? Being devoted to good works. Being devoted to good works. Engagement in, involvement with, devotion to good works. It all captures the idea nicely. When when leaders emphasize gospel-grounded good works, believers, in turn, dwell on ways to leverage these good works. So what the, the, the pastors should be doing is promoting the gospel and how it's having an impact on everyone's life. And then, you know what the people are doing? They're recognizing the value of that. And then they're thinking, what are some ways that I can use this? How can I live this out this week? Look, we do this with anything that we learn to love. I remember talking about junk that we probably need to clean out. <laughs> I remember uh, Tanya and I watching an advertisement a few years ago on the internet for a Nutribullet. You ever seen this? It's the ripoff of the Ninja. It's a food processor. You're supposed to be able to make all these juices and stuff from it. I mean, if you watch the little infomercial, you would think that you would use this thing every day, multiple times a day. And when we first got it, we were looking for any stinking excuse to use the Nutribullet. I mean, who cares? Why do we need it for it? Let's just liquidate our food anyway. So we had our Nutribullet, and it was like, all right, can we juice that? Can we juice that? Let's get, I mean, like, hey, let's turn this into a juice. I mean, just, and it, it lasted about a month, and then all of a sudden it just kind of made its way up to the cabinet, and then it made its way to the back of the cabinet, and then I cannot honestly remember the last time we used the Nutribullet. Now, is it a useful thing? For sure. But our memory of its usefulness has faded. <laughs> In a similar way, I think every Christian understands the value of good works and living out the gospel. Nobody's walking around saying, like, oh, that's no good. I don't ever need that. You, you'll get in a, 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 you hear a sermon like what you heard last week. You got a text that's just really clear on it, Titus 3, 1 to 7. And you're like, all right, let's do this. Let's live out the gospel. Let's do something. And then a couple weeks later, it gets kind of put on the shelf. You're like, I kind of remember that. And then it gets pushed to the back of the shelf. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself busy with things that have nothing to do directly with the advance of the gospel in your own life. You forgot about its value. You forgot about its usefulness. What's the strategy for the church? Remember Titus 3, verse 1. He says, remind them, present active imperative of these things. Be reminding them. Constantly bring it to their mind. The gospel and its value for their everyday living. This is the stress and emphasis of the ministry. And therefore... This will be the stress and emphasis of the people. You get what you emphasize. So we should be coming in to every church service, every church gathering, every church ministry, and expecting a couple things. More clarity on the gospel and more clarity on how to live out the gospel. This is what he says we should emphasize. Why? 
Look at the last half of verse 8. These things, plural again, are excellent and profitable for people. So we have stuff in our lives that's not excellent, it's not profitable, it seems kind of useless. He says, no, this is what's good, this is what's beautiful, this is what's useful, this is what's helpful. Good works, living out the gospel. You know, this is the reason why God saved you, Ephesians 2.10, verses 8 and 9. Saved by grace through faith, not of works. But then he quickly goes along to verse 10 and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That was the whole reason he saved you, was to put his glory on display. And what he's saying is, when you remember this, you're living out your God-given purpose. You feel empty pursuing the things that you're pursuing? You ever feel like your life's not making that much of an impact? Do you know that you should be living for something more than what you're doing currently? He's saying, look, remember the gospel and what it's intended to do in you, and that is to put his grace on display through your life. That doesn't mean that you have to quit your job and go out somewhere and become a full-time Christian worker. What it means is in every vocation that God has called you to, you recognize that there is opportunity to put God's name on display here, and you do it. That's what a church does. It's reminding you of this. That's its stress. That's its emphasis. And so, focus on gospel learning and gospel living is what Paul is calling us to. He's like a skilled photographer. Paul is. He would have us recognize that you you really can't. A ministry can't focus on everything. It just can't. I received a new phone a few months ago. My other one was two and a half years old. And uh, full disclosure, I'm an Apple person. I, that's the way I work. And so I got an iPhone 8. And I was really excited about it. Because it had this feature that I saw in the commercials. It sold me on its usefulness. This feature called portrait mode. I don't know if you've seen it. You switch the camera over to portrait mode, and what it does is it will take an object... And it brings it into like laser sharp focus and somehow it uses another camera on the camera to blur out everything behind it. And you could take the most mediocre picture and it looks like something that should be at the county fair with a blue ribbon on it. I mean, it's just so clear, it's so sharp. Every, I mean, it doesn't matter what the background is, you can't even see the background, it's so blurry. But you're like, this is an awesome picture. I took a picture of Gabriel sweaty after a football practice and I'm like, this is all-star. Look at this. Like you could see the sweat on his face and like there's a, like a blurry football field behind. Focus. Something's got to be sharp. Something else has got to be blurry. I can't make everything sharp. Listen, what he's telling us is that pastors, ministries need to make some things crystal clear. And because of that, by the nature of the definition of focus, some things will be out of focus. Listen, what God is calling this church and any church to be crystal clear on is the content of the gospel and the conduct that should flow from it. Naturally then, follow this, some things just can't be as clear. Maybe another illustration would be highlighting. You ever use a highlighter? You're supposed to use that to bring emphasis to something. Well, if you highlight one word on the page, you've brought emphasis to that word on the page. But what happens if you like all the page? And you highlight every word on the page? Guess what? You haven't highlighted anything. Similarly, here as a ministry, 
there are very few things we've got to put the pen to and highlight. And those are the things in this text. Does that mean we ignore the rest of them? Does that mean we don't read anything else in the book? No. He just says this is the emphasis and this is the stress. We still will preach and teach the whole counsel of God. If the Lord would allow me, I would honestly desire, just personal aspirations as a pastor, I would love to be able to preach through the entire Bible. And because of that, I know that I can't like, get my way bogged down on a 12-week study in 1 Chronicles 12. You know, like I, I know I've got to take bigger chunks of test to, a text to do that, but I, that's a personal desire of mine. But even, as, if, even though that's my personal desire, I still, no matter what text it is, want to bring us back to an understanding of what has been done for us in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and how that looks in your life this week. That's faithful ministry. That's exactly what the Lord is calling us to do. Even Paul uses explicit language like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember what's going on in 1 Corinthians? He's addressing a ton of practical issues, right? There's church splits going on. You've got people who are living in immorality. You've got people who are using spiritual gifts in a, some type of twisted and perverse way to glorify themselves. They're taking the Lord's Supper all out of order. I mean, it is a messed up church. And what does he say to them in 1 Corinthians 15? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Do you see that? There's a hierarchy <laughs> of things that we emphasize. And number one must be clarity on the gospel. So here's our focus, church, learning and living the gospel. What did you come to church for today? Some of you are visiting. I'm glad you're here. Some of you come regularly. What brings you back? What are you looking for? What are you hoping to get out of it? Paul's telling us here, if, if, our, if our motives are right, if we understand what ministry really is, First and foremost, we want to get clarity again on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We want to be clear on the gospel. You say that this is obvious. No, it's not. This is not obvious, friends. A pastor friend of mine recently made an effort to clarify the gospel in every one of his sermons. I won't say where the church is because this isn't going in a good direction. The church, um, probably about 200 people, had been used to some moral talks, some inspiring and relevant messages. That was the words, inspiring and relevant. This particular friend understood that, hey, you know what? <laughs> I don't want to not be inspiring. I don't want to not be relevant. But he just really felt a burden to be clarifying the gospel in every message. You know what happened when he started doing that? It only happened for about three weeks. He got cornered after a service by like this small little group of individuals, and they were like, what, what, do, you, what do you keep preaching the gospel for we've got that we need to move on to more relevant issues they even questioned if he was studying during the week because he just kept getting back to the same thing listen there are churches all around this world all around this county that do not understand this you have to embrace god's values for a church gospel clarity is that which he wants it is more relevant it 
people want stuff that's more relevant or more engaging or, or more culturally sensitive. And we want to get to those things, but we have to stick the main thing or keep the main thing the main thing. Listen, dear Christian, I know that it's easy to grow tired of the gospel because you think of, well, that's just past tense, past tense, past tense. One of the things I've tried to show you over and over again in the book of Titus is that this has relevance for you today in the present. The gospel that saves is also the gospel that sanctifies. It's the thing that makes you more like Jesus. It empowers you for practical good. Just a question. I'll do some participation today since I know it's time change Sunday and you're tired. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. This isn't a hypothetical raise your hand. I'm actually asking you to raise your hand. Good? Okay. All right. How many of you were at the, this, no guilt here, just curious, how many of you were at the marriage retreat, one of the seminars on Friday night or Saturday morning a couple weeks ago? All right, ton of you. All right, put your hands up. Were you not amazed or blown away at the relevance of the gospel for your marriage from that retreat? I mean, did he blow your mind with anything new? He pointed to the fact that we're sinners and we're in need of salvation by Jesus Christ. And the constant conversation that I was having with church members, I'm still having it for the last two weeks, is like, wow, that's engaging. Wow, that's relevant. How many of you, this will be limited probably to the ladies, how many of you ladies um, have been to or are regularly a part of uh, the group of women that get together and read the parenting book by uh, Paul David Tripp? Uh, Raise your hand. I think there's more of you than that, but you can put your hands down. I know you're scared. Are you not blown away when you come across a book like that? Like, what? I don't, I don't need some, like, detailed manual on how to parent my kids. I just need to understand the gospel better. This is relevant. This helps me. How, okay, one more. How many of you are in our seminars on Sunday morning? You've been to a seminar at some point between January and this morning. Raise your hand. Okay, thank you. Put your hands up. Have you noticed what we're focusing on there? Especially if you've been to both. Guess what the first one was? The gospel. <laughs> it was two ways to live. How to explain the gospel. You know what the second one was? And you had to kind of go to one and then go to the next one. How to train a new believer. And you know what it does? It rehearses the gospel. And, and I get it, because like you would think if you're attending this, like, what in the world? Does Phil not have any more creativity than that? Like, can't he get a better program for the teaching ministry at this church? Why, is there, why are we spending so much time clarifying this? Because this is the basics. This is the fundamentals. This is that which everything else will be built upon. For those of you who have been in those classes and you've, you've said, Look, I got this, I got this, it's so clear. And let me ask you another question. Do not raise your hand on this one. But have you yet to share that with anybody? You're like, man, I got this. I know you've got this. I love you. I, I know you've got this. But you're supposed to be sharing it with somebody, with anybody else. Because we're trying to remind you that people don't know this stuff. We've got to emphasize something. I get it. You may want to study the wounds of the beast of Revelation. And we may offer that seminar one day. But in the meantime, we have to keep the focus on that which the scriptures call us to keep a focus. It's not just the gospel. 
and content, but it's also gospel conduct. It's good works. Leaders are instructed to insist on and stress the trustworthy word and its practical implementation. And do you notice the language that Paul's been using? He's saying, look, I want you to emphasize both these things, not just the content, but the conduct. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 again. But as for you, Titus and the elders, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice he doesn't just say teach sound doctrine. He says teach what accords with sound doctrine. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, plural, exhort and rebuke with all authority. What were these things? Well, we saw that a few weeks ago. It was those behaviors and the beliefs. And again, here in verse 8 of chapter 3. Insist on these things. Look, we have to do both. We have to do both. There's belief and behavior. You and I have to contemplate ways to live out that which we learn. I was a, a manager of a new business. Um, that sounds, okay, let me clarify. That sounds like I'm some kind of brilliant entrepreneur. I, I'm not. I was working at a Chick-fil-A. Let me say it that way. Okay. <laughs> but it was a new business. It was, the, it was the first Chick-fil-A to ever be opened in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was my first time ever working in a role like that. I'd been a supervisor for my dad, which the basic job description of that is keep brick mason laying brick. Not too difficult. Uh, but this one was a little more complex just because of the day-to-day -day operations, food costs, you know, that kind of thing. So this is my first experience in any kind of management position. And I remember, like, we were doing these regular Monday morning staff meetings, and I thought, wow, what a waste of time. Like, we got stuff to do. We would talk about and complain about the same issues every week. Oh, the stuff, you know, it's too dirty. The workers are getting off too late. You know, the food costs are too high. They're not friendly enough. Well, they didn't upsell. I mean, like, and then that next Monday morning, same thing. Well, the same thing happened last week. You know, the food, was, the food cost was too high. They got off too late. I mean, I only needed about three of those to think this is not working. <laughs> I don't even know what good it is to pay us all to sit here for an hour and just to complain about the same stuff every week. So the owner being the business savant that he was, said, you know what, you guys need some training on management. I'm going to send you to this seminar, this event. It's a long story. It was an interesting event. But I walked away with one thing from that event. And that was every meeting. It's not just for the information, but it also exists for implementation. You know what the practical takeaway was? They said, all right, guys, when you're in your meetings... Make sure that you're capturing action items. You see, because what's happening is you're spreading information to one another, but if nobody does anything at the end of the meeting as a result of it, it was a wasted meeting. So I just took that away. I was like, all right, we're going to start capturing action items. Every time I was in a meeting, I'm like, oh, okay, we're going to do this by this date, and you're going to do it, blah, blah, blah. I became somewhat of a jerk. I, just, I was always writing down, you said you were going to do this. I kind of even do that now. I apologize, guys. <laughs> you don't shake your head that much. <laughs> no. <laughs> but what a mind-blowing thing. You, you ever feel like you're just spinning your wheels, like you're not making any progress spiritually? Like you're, you're hearing sermons, and it makes sense, and it sounds good, and you're like, you're still struggling with the same thing over and over again. You know what God intends? That you not only write down information. Some of you are doing a great job writing down an outline. You may need to put a little section on the bottom of your notes that says, to-do list. And start capturing action items. See, we feel very comfortable with the gospel learning. 
But the, the way that we're spending our wills is in the gospel living. Probably. I, I'm assuming that but by the time it's done, if I did my job well, like, you, you kind of know what the text is about. It's, it's, you don't really need to rehash the meaning as much as you do the significance. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Imagine how it would change our church if instead of just looking for the outline, we looked for the implementation. He's saying, this is what a faithful ministry does. Because the people should eventually get to the point that they're not only believing the gospel, but behaving in a way that befits the gospel. And that's constantly why they're gathering together. Like, this is their marching orders. They're ready to implement these things this week. This is what Paul is commending for us. This is where our small groups exist, by the way. For those of you who are part of them, I think you know that we're not delving off into a bunch of rabbit trails. Everyone that I visited, you know what the focus is? How do we live this out this week? So guess what you should probably be doing? You're sitting here, you're listening to the message, and you're writing down the things that you could do to put the gospel on display. And then if you're in a small group, you're writing down things like, you know what, I think we could do this to put the gospel on display. The small groups is a very nondescript name. You can almost call them ministry teams, implementation teams. <laughs> We're working together to live out that which we know. Let me be clear, especially for those of you who are visiting. Do we do this to earn our salvation? No. Titus made that very clear. Not by works and righteousness which we have done. This is not to earn our salvation. It is to evidence our salvation. See, here's the deal. This is what I know. This is what we know about one another. Because we really love Jesus, because he's changed our heart, we want to see his name glorified. I don't know of a person in this room that's saying, you know what, I just think I want to live a mediocre life and I don't want to have any impact for eternity. No, our hearts have changed. We, we want His glory to be on display. And capturing action items, if you will, gives us the opportunity to do that. Learning and living the gospel. So if we don't want to drift, if we don't want to fill our con our consciences or our calendars with useless clutter, we have a simple strategy and that is to embrace the value of the gospel and good works. But there's a couple other strategies that flow from this one. The next is a, a logical counterpart and that is to avoid distractions to the gospel. Avoid distractions to the gospel. Look at verse 9. This is really simple. But avoid. <laughs> uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. You see the contrast here? Uh, you've got unprofitable and worthless compared to the end of verse 8, useful and beneficial. There, there are these two categories. He says, look, if you discuss the gospel and its implications, it should lead to one direction. Or if you discuss other things, they're going to lead another direction. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what are these things? A foolish controversies. Uh, I always will point this out when I can. Greek word? Moros. Anybody got any ideas? Uh, my former stepdad loved that. He used to give out what he called the Big M Award. The Moron Award. Typically to anyone who cut him off in traffic or anything that he didn't like. But we know the word moronic. What this is, is moronic controversies. Foolish. Genealogies. 
Clearly, this group had some ties to Judaism and had somehow extrapolated doctrines from Old Testament genealogies. I don't know how you do that, but we do know that there is a strong Jewish presence in that community. And could you imagine them saying, all right, that gospel stuff is good, but let's turn our Bibles to First Chronicles and do a study on the genealogy. Somehow they were getting moral benefit from this. Not only that, but dissensions. It just means strife or discord, things that lead to a fight. He clarifies what that strife or discord would be in the last little part. He says, and quarrels about the law. Literally, word battles. Presumably over the minutia of the Old Testament law and their relevance for today. You say, all right, Justin, make this modern for me. What were they dealing with? Hey, full truth in advertising here. We have no clue. I mean, like, I've read a lot of stuff. And, and everybody's like, huh? The funny thing about commentaries is they love to make up things from time to time and act like they know what they're talking about. They don't even pretend to know what's going on here. They're like, we have no idea how this was being used on the island of Crete. All we know is moronic, it led to dissension, and people were fighting with one another over it, and there was some stuff about Old Testament genealogies, but that's about the best we've got. But that's the nature of religious error. You never really have to be too specific about it. I mean, I could tell you how to get to my house, and there are about a thousand and one ways to not get to my house, all of which will look widely different. There's only one way to get an answer right. There's an infinite number of ways to get it wrong. And so here, this particular expression of error was something religious, but it was just off. And how do we know that it's off? Well, here's the fallout of it, verse 9 at the very end. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Here's what we know, that whatever these debates were, even if they were solved, this nonsensical teaching, even if it could have been understood, should have been avoided since it was unprofitable and worthless, useless and fruitless, impotent and ineffective. It wasn't doing anything for them. And he's saying, avoid these things. Stay away from them. Now, this is probably, as I consider this, the most difficult thing that I could try to explain to you because we're not all that clear on what it is. So you're, you're wondering, all right, Justin, I'm going to write down my action item. What's the stuff that then that I'm supposed to be avoiding? Well, I don't think any of you have been tempted to go to an Old Testament Bible study on the genealogies lately. Uh, I haven't seen anybody arguing over the interpretation of the Old Testament law. But what is it that we're supposed to stay away from? Here's the, the most helpful way that I can say this, and I've spent a ton of time thinking and praying about this this week, so just know that this is my best attempt. We need to stay away from useless religious drivel. That's the best way I can say it. Useless religious drivel. Not all religious or Christian ministry is created equal. When it comes to the teaching ministry of a church or the spiritual nourishment of its members. All right, so you're objecting because uh, I could get it. All right, Justin, I've got it. Uh, this makes sense to me. I know that we shouldn't study the Book of Mormon. I know that we shouldn't do our devotions from the Koran. I know that we shouldn't go to a Jewish rabbi for marriage advice. I've got this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you. No, you don't. If that's what you think this text is about, you've missed it. He's not saying don't pursue obvious error. He's saying don't pursue quasi-religious things that don't help you spiritually live out the gospel. Are you catching me here? 
He's not warning against straight-up error. He's warning us about the religious drivel. That's the best word I could use. Any religious or Christian stuff that is not clear in the Scripture or useful for good works. Here's a, a couple questions that you could ask yourself that can help you avoid this type of nonsense. One, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Does it clearly come from the Bible or does it just reference the Bible? Listen, that's a great question. Does it, just, does it come from the Bible or does it just use some Bible references? Can it clearly be established from the Bible? All right, here's your second question. What is it trying to accomplish? What is it trying to accomplish? Will it help me behave in a way that befits the gospel? I've tried to think through some of the most religious, uh, recent religious nonsense that has crossed or consumed the church over the past couple of decades. And um, what I've decided to do this morning is I will, I have the names of particular books, but if I mention the names in particular, uh, somebody is going to focus too much on the book itself and not on the content. If you want to know what names I think are useless religious drivel, come back and circle back on Wednesday night, and I'll discuss every one of these books in detail. But in the meantime, let me just give you a summary of what I'm not kidding are some of the most popular New York Times best-selling Christian books in the last 15 years. And I want you to think through those two questions. Does it come from the Bible? Does it lead to good works? Okay, you ready? All right, one particular book says that there's a secret set of messages encoded within the Hebrew text of the Torah that can be uncovered with the right mathematical equation, thereby helping us to predict modern events. All right, does that come from the Bible? Nope. Never saw anywhere that told me to look for a mathematical formula. Uh, do I need to interpret current modern? Nope. Don't need to do it. All right, let me give you another example. You're, you'll figure out some of these books. I'm okay with that. I'm just... Humor me. This book was released... Um, and it exploded. I'm talking millions and millions of copies and multiple Bible studies. It quickly became one of the best-selling Christian books of all time. Knocking on the door of like Pilgrim's Progress. You want to know what it is? It's based on an Old Testament genealogy. No kidding. It's based in an Old Testament genealogy. And the book promises fame and fortune to all who recite its special prayer. Where's the content? It's not the gospel. What does it promise? Not anything closely related to us living out the gospel in good works. One of the most popular is, um, I mentioned this one a few weeks ago. You'll figure it out really quick. God wants our lives to be easy and comfortable. That's the premise of the book. The gospel explained in it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and has nothing to do with eternal life. Instead, it tells us that we can measure our spirituality by the pleasures we experience in this world. Does that sound like it's coming straight from the scriptures? No. Does that lead you to good works? No. All right, here's another one. I could do this all day. <laughs> this one is interesting because it contradicts all the other books that are written in the same genre. The unique genre here, by the way, is uh, what I would call heavenly tourism. This particular book replaces confidence for heaven with a kid as opposed to the Word. So instead of people finding their hope about what heaven's about from the Word of God, this book actually says you can really find out what it's about from my son. 
Now, here's the saddest thing about this book. Clearly, it's not biblical. It doesn't line up with the book of Revelation or anything else that's disclosed about heaven. And it doesn't help you in any way live out a good work that displays the gospel. But the saddest thing about it was just a few years ago, uh, the kid, as he grew up, denied his speculations and admitted that his father made it all up. This one blows my mind. Again, another millions of copies. It came out in 2011. It's based on a story in the Talmud. All right, you read the introduction. It tells a story from the Talmud about this guy who draws a circle around himself and tells God to make it rain or he's not going to leave the circle. Well, eventually, God makes it start raining. He tells him, hey, it needs to rain harder. God makes it rain harder. He tells him it needs to rain lighter. God makes it rain lighter. And from this principle, I am not kidding, folks, he actually says that you should draw a circle around anything in your life that you want God to do, and he's going to do it. This is, look, this is not the obscure list. I'm talking stuff that is bought by the millions. This was number one. And it's based in the Talmud. And if you believe it, you walk out of church or your Bible study or whatever it is drawing circles around junk thinking that it's going to make a difference. What in the world? Paul says avoid these things. Stay away from this kind of stuff. And the reason why I'm not mentioning the book titles is because it just keeps coming out. So you, you, I, can't, I can't just give you the fish. I've got to teach you how to fish. You've got to ask these questions. Where does it come from? Is it coming from a clear argument from the gospel and from the Bible? Can I see this in the content of Scripture? And then secondly, where is it headed? Where is it going? Even if I did understand it, will it help me live out the gospel in a more clear and compelling way? You can ask that about the TV show, about the blog, about the book, about the Bible study. Whatever it is, does it do those two things? And I would say just practically, when in doubt, seek us out. <laughs> There's the phrase. Seriously. I, we're not the, the curriculum police around here. You can read whatever book you want to. Um, I mean, well, no, take that back. You can read most books. It, you're discerning people. But look, really, there is a bunch of stuff. And you know what? Satan's just trying to distract us. He wants to get us off of the main thing. I remember hearing a story a few years ago about um, Warren Buffett. For those of you who are not familiar with him, he's a billionaire <laughs> of Berkshire Hathaway fame. and He knows a little bit about success. I mean, at least on the material end, he's not a believer. Uh, but the story is told about him having a conversation with his private pilot. And he's telling about how you know, like, the, the guy's asking, well, what's the secret to success? How do I succeed? How do I move forward? And Buffett basically tells him, all right, he says, um, right now, he says, well, we're on this flight. Let's write down 25 of your goals. Give me your top 25 goals, the top 25 things you're trying to accomplish. And so they rehearse him, um, makes the list, and uh, he says, all right, second step. Now circle your top five, your top five things. Yeah, circles it. And he interjects and says, okay, I think I get it. I need to focus on these five things and just give my extra time to the other thing. He says, no, you don't understand at all. He says, what you need to do is do these five things and ignore the other ones at all costs. That's the secret to success. Radical focus. 
You know what Paul's calling us to do here? Put a big old circle around gospel. Put another big old circle around good works. Ignore the rest of it at all costs. You say, Justin, are you telling me to ignore certain parts of my Bible? Absolutely not. Listen, if you don't think that the entire scriptures are about the redemption provided in Christ for the glory of God, you don't know how to read your Bible. All of the word ultimately leads to that story. And you know what it's all trying to get you to do? To demonstrate that grace shown to you through Jesus. Not to earn it, but to demonstrate it, to put it on display. He says, look, you're going to have to stay away from some things. It, it, it cannot be the focus of your ministry. There is a third thing here. And I won't have time to cover it, but I'll note it and we'll look at it next week. Strategy three. Reject distractors to the gospel and good works. Reject distractors. You avoid distractions. You reject distractors. And because it deals with kicking people out of church, and that's such a sensitive topic, we'll discuss it more next week. But in the meantime, I think it's clear for us to see exactly what Paul is calling us to focus, priority, on the gospel and good works. It, the text shows us that God would have us ruthlessly push back against the cluttered lives and ministries that we tend to lead and to prioritize the living and the learning of the gospel. As I was reflecting on this this past week, I couldn't help but think of the Japanese author and organizational consultant Marie Kondo. If you've never heard of her before, she is a New York Times best-selling author of The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, here's the subtitle, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. Now, this is not a religious book. <laughs> but you would think it is in the way that it's taken off. The book's been published in more than 30 languages. It's a book on home organization. And she was literally listed in 2015 as one of Time Magazine's most in, top 100 most influential people. Hundreds of thousands of people rave about her method of organizing one's home and one's life. And what's her secret? I have no shame in telling you. I have read part of the book. It's pretty simple. The thing that you see over and over and over again in her writings is this phrase, what sparks joy? What sparks joy? It's actually, it's funny because it's a positive thing. You would think a book about organizing would be a negative thing, like get rid of stuff. She says, no, you need to surround yourself with that which sparks joy. And then that entails that you get rid of the things that don't. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the key to any prioritization effort. It's just realizing what's the most valuable? How do we recapture purpose? What's the most important? And so the question before us today is something similar. What sparks joy in the heart of God? What would He want to see prominent, featured in this ministry and in our lives individually? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ evidenced in the good works of His people. Has your spiritual life grown a little cluttered? little ineffective, feel like you're lagging, overwhelmed, 
couple things. One, practically focus on that which sparks joy in the heart of God. Look again to the gospel. Maybe it's grown old to you. Maybe you just feel like it's too familiar. You know, the, the gospel actually works in an opposite way of food. It's the only thing that the more you get, the more you want of it. The less you get, the less you want it. Maybe you need to lean in. You need to dive in. If your heart's cold, listen to me. I say this um, with all sincerity. If your heart's cold to the gospel, one of two things could be true. Either you've never been converted, either Jesus has never come into your life and changed you, regenerated you, given you spiritual life so that you would have the eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, the ears to hear its sweet sounds. And the only way you'll ever have that is to recognize your own sinfulness, your own rebellion against God, and to rely on Jesus alone. You will not benefit from the gospel apart from his work and your response to that. But I would say if you're here today and you say, no, Justin, I've done that. I promise I have, but it's just still kind of old to me. It's still kind of stale. Right, listen, there is a spiritual issue. You need to be praying about it specifically. And I would also say this. You could talk to, and I offer this all the time, but I mean it. You could talk to one of the pastors at this church because there is nothing else that they would rather have you do than to find joy in the gospel once again. I specifically have a couple of resources in mind that I'd be willing to give you, to have you work through so that we could think through this together. We need to recapture a focus and a love and a passion for the gospel itself, learning it. But secondly, you say, I got that. I'm, I am learning. Second thing is real simple. Now we've got to live it. We've got to think through those practical ways. Listen, you don't, when I say stuff like, I think you should create a to-do list on the bottom of your page, I'm not speaking like, the evangelical pope ex-cathedra saying you have to do these things. I'm just providing a suggestion. I just know how I work. Typically, if I don't write it down, I don't get it done. But whatever your method that you choose, my prayer for you is that you come into this service with a tenacity to figure out how can I better live out the gospel this week in my sphere of influence. Maybe that's writing it down Maybe that's talking with somebody about it after the church service. But we've got to start, or keep putting it on display. Ultimately, we want to do what John Wesley charged his congregation to do. He says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can. In all the ways you can, in all the places you can. At all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. There's a lot of opportunity there, isn't there? Let's pray that God would give us a heart to show good works to that degree. Father, we ask for your help in doing this even now. We realize this is not for salvation. <laughs> we... We're not trying to earn your favor. You've already showed us your favor. We've made that clear in the singing and the praying and the preaching. Or you did it all. You saved us. But we do ask that you would use our ransom lives in any way you choose. Pray that we'd walk out of here every Sunday. We're consumed with your glory and evidencing that to other people who need it. Through acts of kindness, through acts of holiness through compassionate explanations of the gospel, we're mobilized this church in a powerful way for good works, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.